welcome to What? It is that show where a bunch of adults give each other a book report of the Marvel mystery or machination of their choosing. My name's Ellie Main. I am a content creator here in Austin, Texas, and as always, I'm joined by the fabulous Chelsea. Who oh, she looks so angry. Chelsea, I'm what's never- going on? I'm just look. I, as we were talking about right before we started this, I'm, I'm. It's September, and no one asked. I don't think it is. It is actually. I, I checked, and no one. I checked because I felt, look, I'm as surprised as the next guy, but it's September. I'm still in my house. And as we discussed, as was said on Twitter, I'm no longer going to be the bigger person. Uh, (laughs) If anything upsets me, if you upset me, I'm just going to bite you like a rat. She's going to bite you like a rat, folks. You heard it here first? I will. I will. Try me. She won't even might. She will. I Not Uh, even I might. I will. (laughs) I'm very excited because this week we're joined by Eliza again. Okay, so you know how they always call Harry Styles Hazza, and they call Cheryl Cole, formerly now just Cheryl, Chazza. Yeah. And I remember in British Jones, in Bridget Jones's British Twitter. <laughs> in no way the name of that film. That should be a hundred percent in British Jones British Diary. <laughs> so they had friends where there's like his name was like Jackson or whatever, but they called him like Jezza. Jezza. So or like Shazer for like Sharon. Yeah. So this feels like a British thing. It is. So were you first of all, were you ever like Ezer? And did it ever upset you because it was so close to like Ebenezer? And also, but the real question is because is it because you guys put an R at the end of like some words that end with a vowel, like Eliza becomes a leaser. So then it's like just a really close jump to like a leaser. <laughs> I don't know. You can make a face of me all you want. I have cracked the code. Uh, no, I people was... exposed on this podcast. You know my nicknames. My nicknames were Jellybean. Okay. That's my mom. Jellybean. <laughs> Smelly. That's an obvious one. Smell yeah. and all. That's been later in my life. <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter who came up with it. Eli. I'm just hearing... Oh, Eli? Eli. A lot. That's cute, actually. I like that. Mostly among my Christian friends. Uh-huh. Ah, yes. Which sort of factors in. The Book of Eli, if you will. Sure. I thought your sisters called you Belly. Or, or do we not belly. talk about that? Do we not belly, talk belly. about that? I'm not, I'm belly, sure. Belly. No, mostly it was Smelly. It was Smelly, Ellie, Messy Jesse, and Carrot Slime, Caroline. That makes sense. Let us check out. Slime. Yeah, carrot slime. Good. Carrot slime is the worst. Like not her. I mean, no. (laughs) (laughs) But not her. No, as a nickname, it is the worst one. No, she's amazing. She's beautiful. She's an actress. But like actual carrot slime is the worst. And you know when you pick one out and you're like, oh, carrot slime. I feel like carrot slime is when your carrots have gone bad in the bottom of your vegetable and you pick them out. Yeah, they're just like a little slimy. (laughs) Yeah. And because there's holes in the bag so that children don't die, it just kind of gets in your hands and you're like, yeah. no! You guys, what is that? Why do you carrot slime next what top? Well, I'm so glad you asked because, oh, well, joke <laughs> over. Anyway, I did crack the code, so that makes sense. So I do, good. I do hear like all of, uh, all of <gasps> Lynn just being like, no! <laughs> right? She it! She yeah. figured it out! Did you ever call Sid Scissor? No. We now do a little segment before we get into the whole meat and potatoes. That's five fun fast facts. So, fact number one. 
This is fun, and I will be keeping it in mind. By 1979, homosexuality was still considered an illness in Sweden. So as a form of protest, Swedes started calling in work to sick saying they felt gay. Yes! To protest that law. amazing. Uh, All the swans in England belonged to the queen. Did you know that, Ellie? Of course I knew that. Did you know that? Are you just saying that now? No, I super did know that. Did you know that Nicolas Cage once did magic mushrooms with his cat? Oh, I thought I didn't. I thought I couldn't love Nick Cage more. No, there's always room to love him more because he's that good. There's a town in Canada called Dildo. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that opens up an entirely new avenue for tourist attractions and also little keychains. Mommy, what's a dildo? Like a little baby dildo keychain. (laughs) <laughs> and this last one is uh, dedicated to Eliza, who's in an undisclosed location right now, but like with ducks. Uh, and you're feel free, Eliza, uh, to test this and then get back to us with like a special like update. What update? A what date? Oh my god, that's not. <gasps> oh good. my uh, god! A ducks, a ducks quack doesn't echo, and no one can figure out why. <laughs> I said what I said. You can be silent as you want. I'm shook. Yeah, I it's thought- it's shocking. Interesting. Well, I wonder if they're able to like cut it off. Like if there's no interesting. I don't even know. Is it just the resonance of air? That's what I'm wondering. If it's just like here. You guys, I don't want to alarm anybody, but I can't. No one knows. No, I can speak duck. So maybe I wonder if that's alarming. (laughs) Oh my god. She can. That was, that was a lot. We proved it. But that did echo. So we, we proved it. <laughs> but she did. But he. But she's right. Her thing did echo. This is the part of the show where we swap our titles. We're both going to present Elisa with a topic, a book report of sort of in a way. And uh, she's going to judge which one is the best through a sort of very abstract point system. And uh, who wants to go first? Do you want to go first, Chelsea, or shall I? I can go first. Yeah, please do. Uh, The quest is over? Is this about the treasure? Which treasure? National treasure with Nick Cage. (laughs) Uh, Kind of. (gasps) Okay, well, Sorta. is it related to Forest Fan? It is not about Forest Fan. Okay. Ooh, the quest is over, and it probably has something to do with Nicolas Cage and maybe about National Treasure. The quest is over. What have we been questing? Is it about the Holy Grail? Yes. <gasps> Ooh. Is it really? Oh, my God. Yeah, you is do, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think I maybe I've said it on this podcast, but if I haven't, I, I unapologetically love the Da Vinci Code and its subtleties. <laughs> Hell yeah! Because, well, but right? didn't the Da Vinci Code, and now this is spoilers for the Da Vinci Code, which I know it just came out and it's like a world phenomenon. So <laughs> I mean, so like, sorry. Think really quickly, just before you give the spoiler, which I'm ready to hear. I have never read or seen it. Oh. Wow. Well, you're in for. Well, then this is gonna really hit you hard. Uh, out of context unless of course you also know nothing about like catholic dogma and then you might like not really care at all can i pl- uh, may i please set the scene 
please. Said it. Tom Hanks, already great. Is yeah. a is like I'm sold yeah. for whatever. This He's is like about a symbologist. His his whole job is to like decode and decipher ancient symbols. And then he gets put on a quest, put on a path to find the Holy Grail through like modern Paris and England. And it's, it's like a treasure hunt. It's so good, <laughs> but also not good. It's like a twilight version. It's like a twilight level of good. Right, because there isn't there like Illuminati style shit in it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is Illuminati shit. It's, it's all triangles. And then yeah, and it's like those guys who like self-flagellate. What are they called? Yeah, and there's a lot of like Catholic church Catholics. stuff. And <laughs> Catholics. Um, Catholics. It's very what it is, but it's like you know, for me, it's perfect because it's like Uncharted meets my religion. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. So what I was gonna say was what I remember as being the big takeaway from the uh, Da Vinci Code, which some people in my family who shall rename nameless uh, thought was true which i guess it's possible because i will the one thing i will cop to is that dan brown has definitely done more research on this than i have but yeah Uh, uh, but i believe spoiler alert the big takeaway was the holy grail was uh uh what's her name mary magdalene's womb the grail was another word for womb Mm. and the the quest for the holy grail had historically always meant the quest for jesus's progeny and her well, yes. I mean, it means the lineage, but like the thing that people are searching for is like her tomb. Yeah. Wait, you guys, just for our, our listeners who may not know, not me for sure. But not Elisa. But not me, but like listeners who might not know. Who's my Madeline? Somebody tell me, or listeners, what the Holy Grail represents and what it actually is. Yes, please. We are getting into what topic. Oh, okay. So we'll save it. But uh, in the meantime, I would recommend that you go watch the Lady Gaga music video, Judas, in which she plays Mary Magdalene, and then some model plays Jesus, and then Norman Reedus from Walking Dead plays Judas, and they have like a three-way in a hot tub, and I think that's really going to help you. Okay. (laughs) Ellie, Uh have you not seen Judas? Judas, Judas. I mean, oh, let me tell you that I know the song because Sid, who has formerly been on this podcast, um, <laughs> used to have like a three-song playlist rotation, uh-huh. and he would play oh, that's the good. same. That's what you want. The same, and we lived together for many years, so the same three songs would be on on repeat for a long time. And Judas is one of them, so I know that song. <laughs> back to Fronto. Um, uh-huh. And I've definitely seen the music video, but I I guess I forget those specific details of it. Oh, those are really important details, though. My title is. The first model, the woman of many names. <gasps> oh my god, I'm thinking like Rose on the Titanic. <laughs> I'm thinking like Aphrodite. Yes, or or like, like a Venus. Greek or Roman. I, I'm 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 talking much more like, uh, like real life. Oh. Oh. Like historically. The fr- can you say your title again? The first model, the woman of many names. Interesting. It's the one of the pre-Raphaelite colon. <laughs> the woman. I mean, Chelsea, I wish that I could tell you that I knew when the Raphaelite pre-Raphaelites. What does that mean? So that's this is actually fun, and it's maybe it's weird that I've never like done this as my what the- topic because this was my thesis in college was about the pre-Raphaelite women. 
uh, it was in like the early 1800s and it was like a little like cohort of dudes and so well Christina Rossetti was kind of in it which was like but she was one of the guy's sisters but they made basically like they were rejecting like what they viewed as modernism in mm. painting at the time so they called themselves pre-Raphaelites because they were returning like to a time of like the sort of like Raphael-esque style mm. of like beautiful women no what right. I keep about in your title is is it like is man the operative word within woman of many names because men were often the first models for artists including and mostly like sculptors like michelangelo i do love how elise's brain works no yeah but, but, but I nar do that. and nar. that's why like all of the female figures that a lot of famous sculptors sculpted had very masculine but they had those like big shoulders <laughs> Yeah, and like truly, everything looks like a man apart from these very strange sized breasts. No, like their boobs were always like very cupped and like super circular, almost like you had never seen a breast. And I never will. Almost like that. (laughs) Never. Well, I still have not seen my own. And I never will. (laughs) And I never will. So this image pops up on the internet once in a while. You might have seen it. A woman sitting with her face in a perfect profile, skin bright against the background. Her dress is huge, voluminous. Skirts (laughs) trimmed with thick bands of lace. She has bracelets on each wrist and her hair is partially pinned up, but uh, one ringlet trails down her neck. Behind us is a child, his face blurred and kind of ghostly mid-motion. But the most intriguing aspect of the image is one of its smallest components, the small hand mirror that she holds. It's oval-shaped, holding a partial reflection of her face, eyes, nose, and top of her lips. And it's in this fragment of a reflection that you see her gaze is steady, staring right down the camera lens. Have you ever seen this picture? I don't think I have. It sounds so familiar, but I don't think I have. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. you never seen it? Who so, painted it? It's not a painting. It's <gasps> what? A what? What? So part of the beauty of this photograph is that there are many ideas of what this photo is about. Is it vanity? Is it self-awareness? Is it a horror photo? Is it playfulness? Or is it something else entirely? I feel like the way you described it, it sounds horror. And if you look it up, it, it's... It, I feel like from my own, like my modern context, it's like a pretty like horror image. Um, mm-hmm. Today I'm talking about Virginia Aldioni. Ooh. Better known to history as the Countess of Castiglione. She was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. She was yes. an Italian aristocrat who was legendary for her beauty and photographic misadventures. And she turned herself into the world's first model. Her photographic misadventures? Yes. uh, I would love somebody to remember me by that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That is very good. Please tell us more. Also seems like just a title for like my MySpace. This lady (laughs) went from being famous to being pretty infamous. 
pretty quickly. So, from her bedroom exploits to her tragic downfall, the Countess of Castiglione is one historical figure worth getting to know. On March 22, 1837, the Countess was born into her very own gilded velvet world. The daughter of Tuscan nobles, her birth name was, get ready for this, I'm going to try and do this the best, and I'm probably going to need Elisa to, like, help me with this. Virginia Elisabetta Luisa Carlotta Antonietta Teresa Maria Aldioni. They're like, how many can we put in? The woman of many names. Wow, I love it. So... She sat for hundreds of haunting strange photos over the course of 40 years from 1856 to 1895 and the resulting body of her work has intrigued people for generations. She wasn't a muse or a passive model. The Countess obsessively and fastidiously art-directed each photo, sometimes even choosing the camera angle or painting over the printed images herself. She fixed her own photos of herself. She did her own... What's it called when you, like, fix a photo? She went in the dark... She developed them? She didn't develop them. She fixed them afterwards through this process. Oh! Uh... Well, I mean, I don't know. I think fix works. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She did them herself. So... In recent years, the Countess has been dubbed everything from selfie queen to... Uh supreme narcissist to surrealist pioneer during her lifetime she was called a miracle of beauty like venus descended from olympus that's in quotation marks but that's cool one of her contemporaries noticed she was so self-absorbed that after a few moments she began to get on your nerves this girl was so vain so vapidly vain like the only thing she cared about was her own appearance and how she appeared in photos I mean, if somebody called me Venus to send it down from Olympus, I might become pretty obnoxious. Someone wrote that at gatherings, she would allow people to admire her as if she were a shrine and she never spoke to other women. You shouldn't. Wow. Part of me has <laughs> like, is she art directing or like directing in any sense these photos? And therefore, like, is it more about art than vanity? That is in terms of. That is such a great that is such a great point that you bring up, Lisa. That is such a great point that you bring up. It's a great we point. We'll get back there. We will. We will return to that point. Um, she loved to write about herself uh, in the third person. Oh well. Wrote, well, that is obnoxious. <laughs> she, she once wrote, "The Eternal Father did not know what he was creating the day he sent her into the world." He modeled and modeled, and when he was finished, he looked at his wondrous work and was overwhelmed. He left her in a corner without assigning her a place. She wrote that about herself in her own journal. That does whip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I I still haven't figured out why this woman's infamous. I mean, she sounds annoying, but also like that it might be justified. (laughs) That she's just like such a babe. Well, I mean, those people did worship her like a shrine. Yeah. Why would you write yourself into a corner? Why would God? Why would God put baby in a corner? Because he was threatened. (laughs) (laughs) So growing up, it was clear to everyone who knew her that young Aldoyoni was going to be a mega babe. She had long, wavy blonde hair, 
a refined face and a legendary figure supposedly which is like annoying because her legendary figure if you like google her is like a beautiful voluptuous woman that has like beautiful curves and like an amazing butt and like big old titties and not like like uh, the, the kind of fucking stick insects that everyone thinks is like a beautiful woman now she's like oh you should just like most oh, you can say it beautiful women she's though. gorgeous like, she's gorgeous but like most historically beautiful women apart from this century have been voluptuous and full-figured exactly like, right. the generation that it's like oh yeah like don't eat well do you know why <laughs> i know why go on chelsea <laughs> This is a very quick aside, I swear to God. Uh, it's because for all of time until now, uh, status and wealth were shown by having an- at least enough to eat, if not like more than enough to eat. Mm-hmm. So being voluptuous was a way to show that you were like well cared for and healthy. It was directly correlated to health, which makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Like you could fully grow as a woman into like a womanly shape if you had enough to eat. Whereas if you didn't have enough to eat, you would be skinny like a child. And that meant that you were poor or you had low status. And only recently, like in like literally like the second half of the 20th century, have we all gotten to a point in Western society where pretty much everybody has enough to eat. So now it's like, but can you eat the right things at the exact right amount to like artificially uh, restrict your body's curate size? Curate it. Also, it's interesting that like things like that have changed over time. Like, sorry, also, but no, but, um, but like in, in a lot of Asian cultures, to have pale skin was a sign of class because oh, you weren't working. No, it still skin. is. It still is. It still is. And people would like dye their skin. Whereas in American culture, you don't want to be black because that comes with a whole lot of other issues. But everybody basically wants to have a tan. perfectly tan, tan, perfectly tanned oh, yeah. skin and like none of the shit that comes along with whatever that used to mean. When I was living in Thailand, every 7-Eleven sold this thing called snail cream, which was something that was supposedly taken from like literal snail juice that made you whiter. And Thai people would buy that to put on their skin to make them look whiter. And like in the same way that we buy fake tan, people in a lot of Asian, Asian countries like that buy like fake white to like dye their skin whiter. It's, it's really crazy what people will do for vanity and beauty. Exactly. So back to the Countess. <laughs> By the time she was a teen, men were regularly trying to bed her. And creepily enough, her parents were totally fine with that. And they actually oh. took advantage of it in sort of the worst way possible. When she was 17, they married her off to an Italian count. And two years into their marriage, in 1855, she was sent to Paris along with her husband. So her husband was a noble, but her own heritage was also nothing to slouch at. Her cousin, Camilo Benso, was a minister for the king of Sardinia. Oh! And when she was sent to Paris, he gave her a secret mission. She was a spy. I love that for her. He secretly entrusted her with a significant mission to persuade Emperor Napoleon III into agreeing on the unification of Italy. Her cousin told her work? her cousin told her in the, in quotation marks to succeed by any means you wish but succeed. 
And Julie, she ignored the usual diplomatic routes and instead decided to put herself in prime position to be the emperor's mistress. I mean, that's any means necessary. Knowing that Napoleon III was a a notorious womanizer and also, quote-unquote, suffered from a chaste and pious wife, impressed Eugenie, who had long stopped sleeping with her sleeping with her husband because she found him and his extramarital escapades disgusting. Well, enter the Countess of Castiglione. <laughs> um. Whether the relationship was for business or pleasure, it nonetheless helped the Countess establish an immediate reputation. All eyes were on her whenever she entered the room, and her costumes were the talk of the court. On one occasion, she boldly appeared at a ball on the Emperor's arm, dressed as the Queen of Hearts. The dress, while dotted with hearts, was almost entirely see-through. Scandal! Her body! This prompted the Empress to angrily quip, The heart is a bit low, madame. (gasps) Which is kind of... I don't fully understand that, but holy shit. It's an old way for saying, Everyone can see your tits, bitch. Damn. Wow. Yeah. Heart's a bit low. Heart's a bit low, madame. Don't you kind of wish that you could be in a situation? I also just recently watched Pride and Prejudice for the first time. So I'm like imagining these are the same time periods, which we're not. But don't you a little bit wish that, well, yeah. Yeah. Don't you kind of wish that you could be in a situation like that where you could just, like the way that people insulted people. You can give you like the most non-offensive nowadays quip that is like a fucking sleigh. But the same thing in terms of like what you did to get ahead, like you could do a very little thing like walking in on somebody's arm or something that would be like a huge deal that wouldn't normally now. be a huge deal. Really interesting. Many times her self-absorption got the better of her and instead of seducing her dancing partner, she only made them annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) One of her contemporaries put it more sharply. After a few moments, she began to get on your nerves. She was so obsessed with herself. (laughs) So well aware of this affair, In 1857, she separated from her husband, whom she'd openly cheated on, as everybody knew, and also had bankrupted. (gasps) He wrote furiously upon his return to Italy, our separation is irrevocable. Damn, for them? That was a really big deal to get separated. Right. This again, remind me? 1857. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 Especially in Italian culture and Catholicism, for sure. Yeah, that's some hellbound shit. Oh, yeah. Of all the relationships the Countess formed in Paris, the most significant and by far the most enduring was her relationship with the camera. Like many other significant society figures, she made her way to the Mayer Pearson photographic studio on the Boulevard de Capucin, let's just say. Yeah. Which was helmed by imperial court photographer Pierre-Louis Pearson. And in that time, in her relationship with him, she amassed over 700 19th century selfies. Yes, queen! (laughs) The old version of an Instagram bitch boyfriend. Like, that's what this She was a baddie! You can rack up 700 selfies on your phone nowadays, no problem. But in the 19th century, that was a big effing deal. Right. That was expensive and time-consuming. That's a lot. So most of the images they produced were of specific characters drawn from myth, art, literature, or the Bible. Lady Macbeth, Anne Boleyn, the Queen of Eritrea, Judith before beheading Halofianes, a nun, and then even a corpse, which we'll get back to later. She also recreated defining moments of her life, mythologizing her own story by documenting herself in dresses that had proved themselves especially admired or notorious. Chief among them, of course, the Queen of Hearts costume. 
Kardashian. There's a photo of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. The Oh, yeah, they're amazing. The Countess infamously snapped pictures that exposed her bare legs and feet. <gasps> no! Oh. <sighs> I'm scandalized. Though that might sound tame, those poses were so indecent by 19th century standards that she had to crop out her own face. (gasps) (laughs) They'll never know. Can you imagine? I can. Can you imagine 19th century OnlyFans that you have to crop out your own face? That's what I was going to say, because, like, I, well, I know that I am, like, not speaking to the right audience right now with the two of you, but, like, so, okay, so on Pornhub, like, there's Pornhub community, which is, like, user-generated content right audience right now that's what i just said but anyway there's user-generated content on Pornhub, and the way you can always tell when a video pops up in like your like homepage, or whatever that it's going to be like from Pornhub community and not Pornhub is that it is always from the neck down and i'm like who are you come on love yourself you're working yeah. really hard you've developed a product 19th century style Market yourself. Market yourself. Don't be scared. I encourage you to Google them and check them out because not Pornhub community, but <laughs> but the count- or maybe or maybe if that's your jam, I don't know. But the Countess's photos because it's hard not to admire the sheer inventive scope of the imagery as well as the clothes. She has like veils and capes and headpieces and ornate off-the-shoulder gowns, masks, silk robes. Um, in one photo, like a bedspread that's like draped pretty suggestively. <laughs> Some of the images are pretty witty and others are pretty fucked up. Uh, there's an image of her, the Countess with long hair and a knife in her hand called La Vengeance. Ooh, which was sent to her estranged husband when he attempted to gain custody of their one yes. son. So oh, he wow. tried to gain custody. She sent him this picture in the mail that was a picture of her holding a knife called La Vengeance. Wow. I'm fucking cut you. Throughout her life, she made use of her famous photography and would often send entire albums to her friends of just filled with pictures of just her. Oh, I should do that for you. Hey, how are you doing? Here's 30 pictures of me. Do you want me to do that for you? I would love that. Please, Chelsea, please do that for me. Please. Okay, you know what? You, You asked for it. You shall receive. Thank you. By 1860, her affair with Napoleon III had soured. There was apparently a mysterious court scandal, and he had to break up with her, and no one knows why. How fun. Even today? We never know. Yeah, like no in- one knows what yeah, no one knows what happened. Damn. But she didn't stop, quote unquote, entertaining. She continued to have hot and heavy affairs with a series of important suitors throughout her life. And she wasn't freaking cheap, because she knew her fucking worth. The, apparently, the Marquis Richard Seymour Conway once offered her one million francs for 12 hours of her company. Yes. 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 Now it takes a, a fairly strange turn. As you can imagine, someone who is sort of thought of to be one of the most narcissistic people ever born, she did not mm-hmm. cope well with aging. Yeah. And her insecurities took on fairly deranged proportions. Um she insisted on spending her final years in black colored rooms with closed blinds and no mirrors her photo projects took on a fairly morbid and disturbed and deranged feel doing things like placing herself inside a coffin and posing with the corpse of her late terrier puppy 
and things like that. She oh, got a little whoa. bit more sort of morbidly emo with her photos. Well, yeah. You know, you get closer to the time right. when things happen and maybe it's, I could see how it would be like more on your mind. Yeah. In her later years, the Countess barely left her house, considering it the height of mortification to show her slightly wrinkled face to the masses. And when she did leave, she would wear dark veils and go out only at night so she could cover all evidence of her shameful age. In 1879, her son, little Giorgio, passed from smallpox, predeceasing his utterly bereft mother by a cruel 20 years, which sort of made people, which obviously kept her inside her funeral black rooms and veils and never leaving the house uh, much more. That's rough. At the time of her death, which was November 28th, 1899, she was in the process of planning a comeback exhibition, a retrospective titled The Most Beautiful Woman of the Century. Oh my god, yes. Dude, she almost made it. Yeah. She had plans to display her collection of over 700 photos at the Exposition Universelle in Paris. And there, there are a lot of books about her, but... The most notable one is called La Divine Comtesse, a book exploring the Countess's social and cultural legacy. And curator Pierre Aproxine writes that art critics have long overlooked the Countess's body of work, mistakenly considering it trivial. The Countess's work anticipated several trends in contemporary art and feminist art in particular. Prefiguring artists like Cindy Sherman, Claude Cahoon, Gillian Waring, Yasumasa Morimura, and Sophie Kahl, all of whom used photography to explore the significance of dressing up, adopting appearances, and manipulating the means of being viewed by others. And that is now how she continues to exist as an image, a face, a set of poses meticulously choreographed and endlessly marveled over. And that is the story. Let me find her name again it's ridiculous wow of the first little selfie baddie (laughs) selfie baddie baddie. that is the story of virginia elizabetta luisa carlotta antonietta teresa maria aldioni you know what ellie yeah i'm just gonna say it you get a point Uh, one point (laughs) i'm just kidding i just still think about that from time to time aliza i don't know if you've come up with a pod but we had our we had our uh composer tyler who did all this music for the podcast we had him as a guest and it was clear that he had never listened to an episode in his life and he was like (laughs) and he was like you get one point yeah he was like you know what that was good you get a point (laughs) but ellie was gonna go apoplectic it was amazing and it was amazing It was brutal. Uh, Ellie, (laughs) you get a point plus seven. Because you know I love a selfie and you know I love a baddie. Exactly. I I told you, I should have called it the original baddie. It's it's fine. I'll take a point off because you didn't call it original baddie. But that's still very good. Uh, And I'll give you another two points because we got to talk about how body images evolved. Oh. That's true. We did. We did. Ellie... I'm going to give you six points for introducing me to a character that I'm so surprised I've never heard of. Um, I'm going to give you two extra points for keeping that character alive because I feel like she deserves to be kept alive. Um... Yeah, Did you awesome. notice that I chose someone Italian for you? Oh my God, for I you. did, and so extra point for that. Ellie, could you have said that in a creepier way? 
No. I'm going to be real with you guys. This one came about in a pretty fun roundabout way, which is that basically I just wanted to do a what topic on Nicolas Cage because I love him so much. <laughs> uh, Ellie knows one of my favorite actors. I actually have not one but two different Nicolas Cage pillowcases. You have two now? Well, so I always had another one that you didn't get to see that my friend Jillian Aww. got me. That's like, because it fits that a very specific shaped pillow that I don't have anymore. Uh, but it's, it's just like always in my dreams. And it's got like a picture of Nicolas Cage that you can like sleep next to his face. It's great. Oh, yes. So. And the other one, Elisa, just so you know, is a sequin pillow. So when you push all the sequins one way, it's a picture of Nicolas Cage's face. And when you push them all the other way, it's like love red. Yeah, it's very, oh. very red. And so you can make some really creepy images of like Ooh. blood coming out of Nicolas Cage's eyes if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, and this was such a strange experience, and I hope I don't get in trouble talking about it, but I don't think that I will. Uh, so, Ellie, I don't know if you remember this. When we were filming Skill Tree... At uh, one point, I was helping um, our DIT take out all the cards from the from the cameras, which we were borrowing because we were not given a budget. <laughs> so all of the cameras were checked out, and we didn't have enough money to go rent brand new cameras. So mm. we had to use like the like the B and C cams from other yeah. productions to do yes. our full production. We, um, wanted, we had to use the cameras that no one else wanted. Wow. Right, which is how... Including our own DP. <laughs> including, oh. our, not least, our own DP. Which led to us using this camera that nobody had touched that had been like lock up for months. Um, but it was the only one left in lockup that we could take. So I took the DIT for us to go check all the cards, which just basically means you like, put them in a computer and make sure that you're not about to film over somebody else's like fucking masterpiece. And yeah. there was footage filmed from like one booth at a fancy restaurant filming another booth. And at that booth was Nicolas Cage talking to like two men that I don't recognize that did not work at our company, but this was on our company camera. And I remember like looking at Dax and being like, what the fuck is this? And also, are we allowed to like record over this? And he was like, it doesn't look like any kind of like Rooster Teeth project. And also like this camera hasn't been checked out like for almost a year. So we still can't figure out where the fuck that came from. Uh, I mean, wait, nobody knew. No, Nick. I mean, also the only people that got to see it were me and Dax, and neither we were both contractors. But like, we did save it. We like we we you know ripped it to the computer just in case. But like, of course, it was oh so weird. And I was like, what is this from? The only thing I could think was that Nicholas Cage has done like a few productions recently, like in Austin. Like he did that one where he was like a cop, and they found a car. Camera what that was called like mud or something like that, uh, and he did another one very recently that was also like a character drama. So he was doing movies around that time. So maybe he was in town for like a Q and A or something, and then somebody took him out afterwards, but then secretly filmed him having a conversation, and then decided that that wasn't like extreme enough, and then didn't do anything with it. I don't know. The whole thing was fucking bizarre, and I would just remember. <laughs> Do I have this footage somewhere? Uh, Dax probably knows where it is. It's on a it's on a rooster teeth computer somewhere. So <laughs> that could be, and that brings us full circle because now that is the Nick Cage Holy Grail at Rooster Teeth. So if you still have access to all their stuff and you're listening to this, you should try to find it. But while I was researching, trying to come up with a topic where I could get to talk about Nicolas Cage, I found out that Nicolas Cage. 
which very much suits his personality, once went on his own quest for the Holy Grail, like the actual Holy Grail, which and rules. The actual Nicolas Cage, like yeah. The real life. Oh, you should know. It's great, Elisa, that you're here and that you can function as like audience to like ask questions because Nick. This is like very much in his personality. So one of the ways that I first knew that I love Nicolas Cage is that I'm from New Orleans. Nicolas Cage spent a fuck ton of money or as we say in New Orleans buku money to get a plot a burial plot in one of the original Lafayette cemeteries which you are, told me this yeah which are like they they kind of sit around kind of roughly the perimeter of the French Quarter they're incredibly old like Marie Laveau like all of like the sort of big like famous uh characters or, like larger than life historical figures uh from New Orleans history are buried in the Lafayette cemeteries, their cemetery one, two, and three. Nicholas Cage spent an exorbitant amount of money to get a plot there and he built himself a pyramid. And so he has a pyramid that already has his name on it and his birth date and it's waiting to be like, to have his death date put in there so that he can be buried in this fucking pyramid in New Orleans. But, but didn't, didn't he didn't he to New Orleans? Like what is, like what, or to Lafayette? like. What is the connection there? What's he just really likes New Orleans, which I get New Orleans rules. But um, didn't he used to own that creepy house? He owned yes, he owned. Um, Am I stepping on your topic no, by saying you're that? not? Okay, he owned the Lalaurie Mansion, which is one of the most famous haunted houses in wow. the French Quarter. But he was just like, "This is really haunted," and he bought it, and then he got in there, and then he was like, "Nope." And he immediately and he was like, "Hey, no, this is really haunted." He's and like, like, "No, oh, yeah, be fun haunted, but it's actually like soups haunted." Oh my god! But Nicolas Cage is also like insane. Like he once had uh, he once had two teeth removed without anesthetic, like two teeth just pulled out of his head, so that he could experience no. the pain of a Vietnam vet. You guys, as someone who has had like the only problems thus far in my life, not not have been dental issues. It is not fun. There's nothing yeah. fun or that anyone needs to experience or know about. It's not good. That is wild. Oh, he is wild. So, so when I read that Nicolas Cage at one point became obsessed with the Holy Grail and thought that he, Nicolas Cage, would be the one to find it, I was like, yeah, this checks out. This makes total sense. That makes sense. So also, here- do we all know, just like, sorry, because I just like, yeah, go for it. do we all know that Nicolas Cage is related to the Coppola's and that he just changed his name because he didn't want to be associated with Yes, that's one of the things I love about him. He didn't want to trade on his uncle Francis Ford Coppola's name. So his his name is Nicholas Coppola. He, he changed it to Nicholas Cage. And then just his name. Which is fine. It's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a Coppola. So fireworks. Okay. I know it's amazing. He's incredible. I can talk about him all night. Here's my quote. This is what sent me down on my own little adventure, and we'll get into why. Here's a quote from Nicholas Cage from 2019 about this adventure that he went on. He said. Okay. There was the time, and I can't do a Nicolas Cage, uh, like, accent, uh, impersonation, and I'm so sorry. There was the time when I almost went on, you might call it a grail quest. I started following mythology, and I was finding properties that aligned with that. It was almost like national treasure. Fuck yes! Of course, that didn't sustain. You read a book, and in it there's a reference to another book, and then you buy that book, and then you attach the references. For me, it was all about where was the grail? Was it here? Was it there? Is it at Glastonbury? Does it exist? Uh, so clearly he didn't find the grail. So clearly it's in Glastonbury, and we all need to go there. Why is it in Glastonbury? So, yes, so 
to me, I was like, because this is what I got from this. And I was like, okay, I do really love the part where he says you read a book and they reference another book and they have to go get that other book. And I'm like, yeah, Nick, that's called academia. That's like literally how it works. You read a book and then they reference another and book. book. And then you have to go read that book. And you have book? to go and find like, that book. I'm like, yeah, it's called research. But yes, I I wanted to hone in on the little clue that Nicolas Cage left us on our own mission, which is that he mentioned Glastonbury is the one place that he said specifically. So I started looking up Glastonbury uh, and I found some really interesting stuff. And actually, Ellie- Big I'm, festival, big festival there. Big festival, some like Zodiac type stuff, which we know now that Elisa's really interested in. There's like a big uh, Glastonbury Zodiac with a temple of the stars where you can- Ooh that they think like the Sumerians made in like 2700 BC, where you can see all the stars and they line up in the temple. It's very cool. Whoa. A lot of Druid stuff. Yeah, oh, can I, oh, let's, this is such an aside. I'm sure that you guys have like a dream life, right? Which is like this idea of just like, hey, if I were a different version of myself that was not attached to A, B, C, or D, I would do this. My like dream version of myself, I moved to England, I study at not Oxford or Cambridge because even in my dream self is not like smart or dedicated enough to do that but like maybe like Trinity College or something and so that I can study insular art and all the freaky fucking shit <laughs> that they all did uh, I think it's so fascinating I got to study it a little bit in my like bachelor's degree which is art history and I just learned enough to know that like there's like thousands of years of history in like England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales preceding like the sort of western history that we're more familiar with that's like spooky yeah. as shit um so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of druidic shit in glastonbury there's also there's two other things that glastonbury is very well known for one is that it's super tied with the legend of king arthur and yeah. it's really tied with the idea that it is where the grail is so I wanted to dig into these two things and I learned some really fun stuff. It brought up for me an age old question in my life, which, which I've always kind of been a little bit too afraid to ask out loud because I was afraid somebody would make fun of me, which was like, was King Arthur a real person? <laughs> because like, obviously I know- I, know. I think that's totally fair. I think that it's like, it's one of those things that has become so sort of like mythologized yeah. and like legislized if I could just like make up a word right. they're like no King Arthur was totes a person but it's become so like Merlin and <laughs> the knights and all the kind right. of things like I get it. it I get it thank you I feel better yes it's very tied with you know the legend of King Arthur that gets into like wizards so then you're like okay but and the sword and the stone but at this so yeah. then you get to a point where you're like okay well like but was there actually like a king and then later they told like amazing tales of him because, like, for example, like, some of, like, the figures in Roman history were real, like, embers or, like, historical figures. But then they were like, yeah, also, like, he fought Titan. And it's like, well, no, no, he didn't. But, like, didn't. <laughs> but this yeah. one was like, was he actually a king or is he just, like, purely myth? And the best I could find, it's, this is, this it was too much to be, it's, you know, to kind of be an aside in this topic. But the best I could find was that there are several king-like figures because also they weren't called kings until like the saxons invaded or whatever there were several rulers in england or that area that they think could have been the original king arthur but everybody's still fighting about it which i think is pretty fun oh that's cool so, they, so like the short answer is like you said like yes like most likely it is based on a real ruler 
a real boy. But they, but historians fight over which one, and how, okay. and like the whole, and how we got to this. With like, to the whole thing of like Lancelot and the whole again. You know. I think you should make this a what topic <gasps> that you fit and tell us because it was. Cause but I tried I'm to gonna get into it. I was like, it. I'm going down a tangent, and I got to keep I'm this gonna, tight. I'm only gonna reference it through. Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail. Oh, good. Yeah, that'll that'll be good. That'll that'll work. (laughs) Okay. The second thing that you got to understand about, like, Glastonbury and King Arthur and the way this connects back to the Holy Grail is, and this is some shit that I really geek out about because, like I said, I took a class about this specifically in college. And, like, yes, I did go to college. Put your dick back (laughs) in your pants. I know you're freaking out, but, like, I did go to college. And... What we talked about in that class was uh, the sort of commercial and economic and artistic history of relics in Europe, which is some crazy shit. So do you guys, you guys, you guys know what a relic is, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking like in my head, the first thing that pops up is like Shroud of Turin. Yes. Like, okay. That's honestly one of the most famous relics of all time, the Shroud of Turin, which he is... He tried to go see it recently and couldn't get in. It wasn't open that day. Great. Uh, well, you know what? Relics are finicky. Ellie, you know about the Shroud of Turin, right? <laughs> I do. Yes. So a relic is like very loosely or widely, a relic is anything that has like religious significance it's an item like a physical tangible right. thing that's the they'd be like part. saint paul's finger bones yes bones are a big one but he kind of a physical big tangible box. thing that uh can be imbued with the idea of like a religious power that would imbue the viewer or if you're so lucky the toucher uh with that same kind of like holy uh spiritual blessedness so relics are obviously like cool from a historical religious and artistic standpoint now but in the like early medieval period this was a there was a relic economy and this was the thing that i studied that i thought was so fascinating was the Catholic Church, ever the pragmatists, figured out really quickly that, you know, the big problem with Christianity as a business was that your two main figures in Christianity, three if you want to count the Virgin Mary, were all dead and you couldn't go visit them. So then they were like, well, hey, we have popes and we have like bishops and they'll do a lot of stuff for you. Like they'll take a thousand years off of your time in purgatory, for example, if you give them a lot of money. And that worked for a time, but they wanted to continue to diversify their assets. So that's where relics come in. Uh, The economy that built up around going to like a pilgrimage to see a relic was nuts. We're talking the entire town would be built. There would be an economy built around just having a relic. You would have the church and then you would have all the inns around the church people that came to see it. You would have all the artisans who made what's called a reliquary, which is the really beautiful, ornate, and oftentimes super complicated housing of the relic, people would eventually kind of spread out and create cottage economies around the pilgrimage line. So say like, say Paris, obviously, for the past 2000 years or whatever, has been a place where lots of people lived. And then you have a small church in say like Rennes, that's like, that's a few hours away that says, oh my God, you guys will never believe this. We have the nose, 
the nose skin from this saint. And everyone's like, holy shit, I gotta go see this nose skin. But a three hour drive now was like a two week trip back then. So they have to take this like two week trip to go over there to see this relic. Well, that means all along the way, people start building new churches along pilgrimage routes. And then they start getting their own relics. And I know what you're thinking, how could there possibly be these many saints bones? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Catholic Church, again, ever the pragmatists, decided to create a classification of relics. This is real. They had first class relics, second class relics, and third class relics. Also, they still do. This is still a thing. Uh, It's just not the same sort of like cottage industry that it used to be. Um, (laughs) So there are first class relics, second class relics, and third class relics. First class relics are directly associated with the events of Christ's life. So we're talking, the grail obviously would be a first class relic. That's why it's so famous and sought after. The Shroud of Turin is a first class relic. Um, Anything that like touched his body, anything that was a, that he directly interacted with in his life will always be a first class relic because it's related to Christ. Another kind of first class relic would be the physical remains of a saint. So that would be bones, hair, anything that's like a body part. So, and if the saint was a martyr, because there was a period of time in which like every martyr became a saint, so like congratulations, um, <laughs> then those are also highly prized. So we have anything related to Christ and then saints like physical body parts are first class relics interjection because my family grew up going to Ravello in Italy and every year on their patron saint day which is the patron saint of like Pantaleone or something I forget exactly his name but they have a vial of his blood in the church in the Duomo in Ravello and that's a relic yeah and then every day this one day on the year uh, on the patron saint day it like liquefies the blood so it, it it becomes liquid versus like hardened blood. oh wow it's a huge deal to like go stand in line and wait and see the blood that is now liquid that like two days later won't be or whatever that's amazing make a huge deal out of it yeah no i mean it's like i said relics are still you can go especially if you're in france italy some parts mm-hmm. of spain um the islands like england and ireland you can find relics to this day uh, and the reliquaries are incredible works of art if you want to see those as well. Um, sec- I'll go really fast. Second class relics would be something that a saint owned. So like a rosary or a book. So it's mm. not as good as it. It's not as good as a limb or some hair, <laughs> but it's pretty tight. Or like a, one of Jesus's finger bones. Right. Right. No, that would be. Oh. <laughs> also, you can't find Jesus's being. That was a trick. Ellie's trick. And I didn't fall for it. Right. You can't. Find- no, no. So. You can't find so his there, bones. You can't. He resurrected. There was like a, there's a, a, a comedy series in England called Blackadder. And in the first season, it's like very much based in this time where relics was like a huge thing where people were like basically like buying and selling oh, and yeah. the medieval church were like all about. And Is the, the main character. Is Yes. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. No, it is. Um, he he like calls out someone for having these relics, and he said that he's spent a fortune on them. And he's like, "Oh, you have one of the one of the relics of uh, Jesus's finger bones." And the other guy goes, "I only th- I thought they only came in boxes of ten uh- And this very like <laughs> silly English back and forth happens. That is fun. 
But yeah, it is Rowan Atkinson, Rowan who Atkinson. is Mr. Bean also. Nice. Plays Blackadder in these historical shirts. Please carry on. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> I know how much you love Blackadder. You reference it a lot, so I'm glad you got it's that. It's so movie. good. I think but I also, actually, I don't know if it holds up. I wouldn't. I don't know if it holds up like, like, like socially. So, because <laughs> sure. I haven't watched it recently, it probably doesn't. Um, so just like take that in mind. Well, this is the last thing. The reason I wanted to say these, like, the classes of relics is because I think this is so, I think this is so revealing as to how, you know, whether or not you are, are somebody of faith, I think we can all agree that, like, when people get involved, that's usually when things start to kind of go south. Third class relics are anything that have come into contact with a first or second class relic, which is how they were able to keep this industry going. Because like we said, there are only so many hairs of a saint or pieces of like pieces of clothing that touched Christ. However, they did things like they drilled holes into the reliquary that was holding a first class relic and they'd pour oil through it and then they'd catch it in like a cup underneath and then that oil would now be a third class relic and they'd go sell it oh, to a church genius because it touched relic oil yeah so like oh this is actually this is blessed oil because it touched the crucifix of santa maria oh, ba-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da. uh you have to pay us money money please it is fascinating <laughs> because like even in the old testament they're like hey objects don't mean anything and please don't make them <laughs> oh yeah no there was an entire period of time in like, and everyone was like i don't think that's true they're like i don't know about that though that's that doesn't sound right you say that but, but did you think about the did? fact that if we if we made paintings of stuff that happened in the bible we could t- we could show titties because it'd be and bible. we could make money <laughs> and we get money also you know that's why like there's so many titties and stuff Look, there's so many Bible paintings, right? Eliza is like, they'll show like the woman that got her tits like sliced off and are on the tray. Oh, people lose their shit for that one. Are all the like maidens that got raped in the Old Testament? It's because that's the only way that they were allowed to paint like sex or like, so they would just paint all these rapes all the time. It was great, great for women. So, (laughs) so those, so we have some relics in Glastonbury. (laughs) Glastonbury becomes famous as possibly the place where the grail is. Part of that is because there's a famous first class relic that was supposedly in Glastonbury. And that was, they had the Church of the Thorn. So you can kind of guess that that was where they said that they had one of the original thorns that was in Jesus's crown of thorns. That he wore Why would it be in crucified. England? Why would it be in England? Because they brought it there. Because that's where he wanted it to be. But they Who did? did it. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> what happened was, it turns out, it was like, one second, I'm so sorry, this has to come to England. <laughs> yeah, that's what they thought. They said, one story even said, this is something that they believed back in the day. Christ himself came and built an, a church in honor of his mother in Glastonbury. <laughs> The other, the Church of the Holy Thorn, when uh, historians tried to trace back, they were trying to like work backwards with the history of the church to figure out, okay, so like, where'd you guys get the thorn? And they were like, oh, thorn, yep, it's there. And he's like, yeah, but like, where did, like, where'd you get it though? Like it had to, cause you know, he wasn't crucified in Glastonbury, England. So like, <laughs> how'd you get it? And they're like, yeah, I don't know, you know, you know. Oh, this old guy? Yeah, so they, he couldn't find any evidence of this thorn this holy thorn uh from the head of christ before the 17th century which as we know is 17 centuries 
later than the crucifixion of Christ. So they go, he goes and traces his back, and this is what he finds out. In 1184, the monks of Glastonbury, at that time it was really kind of only a church town, were in a real pickle because their church burned down and their bishop wouldn't give them any money to build a new church. And it was around that same time that magically all these texts started coming out from the monks about all of these holy relics that had been brought mm. specifically to Glastonbury because it was a yeah. holy site. And yeah, all that makes sudden, sense. Everybody from like the surrounding area started giving money to build a new church, and that's how we got the church of Thorn. And that is, and then because of those rumors or those ideas, that is then why they think that the Arthur mythology started becoming connected to Glastonbury. Because by the time those started to get actually recorded and written down as texts, which was significantly later, uh, they were like, Well, what's like the most magical, mystical, religious place in England? Oh, Glastonbury. It's where the, oh, that makes that's sense. That's where the stars are, and also Christ's thorn. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> so then people sort of think, well, if King Arthur was always looking for the grail, and if he was from Glastonbury, and if Glastonbury is where Christ himself was like, this is where everything needs to go, then doesn't it make sense that the grail is in Glastonbury? So a lot of people have dug everywhere in Glastonbury looking for this grail, and they haven't found it. But do you know who says they did find it? Did you know that? Did you know that supposedly the Holy Grail was found in 2014? No. Yeah, I didn't as hear a, this like, either. Which leads me to as believe, a cup, huh? Is a cup? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, did we define what it actually is and like how you like? They say it was the cup. So the people who say they found it, they say it is the cup that was um, that caught Use Christ's the Last blood. Supper. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they're using the Last Supper, and that I think Mary used it to catch Christ's blood when he was on the cross. So then that makes a double, right? Because like it was his drinking glass, and it was there at the Last Supper, which right. is a major moment. But that's but in the New Testament, that's never no. Um, a lot of never, this like, stuff isn't <laughs> right. But it's, it's it's never insinuated that the 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 cup that Christ used at the Last Supper is the same cup that was used. To catch his blood. Right. Well, so again, like, like anything that has been written about over and over centuries. Carry on. You have big hands. What oh, you I'm saying? sorry. Oh no, I just said so. It's his favorite cup. It's, it's his favorite cup. <laughs> it's like Jesus' sippy cup. <laughs> that was worth. So, that was worth coming back for. <laughs> there. I mean, I think there is like there's a thought that like the Holy Grail is just like the cup that he talks about at the last supper that's like this is my blood mm-hmm. it's the cup a cup that caught his blood at the crucifixion or it's both right that makes sense and i mean i think an important bit of context for any non-catholics out there as to why that would matter so much is because if you're christian chances are you take a uh, part in a ceremony called communion which is right. when you drink wine and you eat a little cracker and it's meant to represent the idea yeah. of the Last it's Supper. It's symbolism. There's no meaning in the cup itself. It's much more about what it represents. Well, but if you're Catholic, then you yes. believe that in the power of like uh, transmutation, which means that when you, a Catholic, take Catholic communion, you are literally drinking the blood of Christ and you are literally eating the body of Christ. You are not eating a symbolic cracker or drinking symbolic wine. You are actually doing those things. So if you can kind of get into that context, if, if that's something that you believe, then finding the original cup 
from either that either held the blood of Christ originally or was part of the Last Supper where he first said that, that would be humongous, right? Big old deal. Well, so in 2014, these historians said that they found the Holy Grail in Spain. <laughs> so not Glastonbury. Also still not like Jerusalem. <laughs> like, but closer. At least slightly closer. We're getting closer. And the thing, the thing about this that I found was so wild was that like nobody was talking about it. But it's, yeah, it's this, it's this uh, church that's in Spain that's been there obviously for a really long time. It's literally called La Capilla del Santo Caliz, which means Chapel of the Chalice. So, and they have a big relic that's a big, beautiful cup that they're like, oh, this is it. They're like, oh, you guys have been looking for this? This is actually it. We've had it this whole time. Well, but here's what's weird. My bad, my bad. We like it. Okay, but here's what's weird about it, though. This chalice has two massive gold handles, a base that's inlaid with pearls, emeralds, and rubies. And the historian that went to go inspect it said that it was hewn from agate and polished with myrrh which I know Murr sounds biblical, but still. And that the the craftsmanship bears the hallmarks of medieval, like medieval, uh, you know, stonework or gem work. So why would Christ, a traveling socialist preacher man Carpenter. from 2000 years ago, have an agate and stone and gold no. cup inlaid with no way. pearls and rubies? Uh, when he was like hanging with the boys so that everyone's like okay cool chalice bro but like yeah why in any... he would more likely be killed for having that than for, for what he was saying, killed for for what he was actually killed for <laughs> yeah yeah so they say if you ask the attendants at the chapel they say oh yeah 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 so Actually, just a little tiny piece on the top of the cup is from the original cup, and everything else was lost. So we they built this beautiful cup around that tiny oh. little piece, which does yeah, make yeah. it slightly Thanks. more believable. Because also, like... Here, I'll send you guys a picture. What were cups... What were cups, you know? Then, and, like, would that even survive the test of time? Right, no. And did they were made of wood. Did really right. care about it that much, or was it just, like, a very convenient cup? I don't think that in that moment it was planned that the cup would be a thing in any way. Right. Right. Oh, it wow. wasn't yeah, meant to be so... about the cup. That is a Buku Bucks cup, Chelsea. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it is, it's weird because it's like if you have this beautiful cup <laughs> that no one's allowed to touch or inspect. There's uh, that no they say, way. oh yeah, well, like a tiny, there's a tiny part inside there that is like, but of course, like it's so old, like we couldn't have the whole real cup. Um, no. Then it, that is a lot harder to prove, right? So Why they attempted they to that? prove the story, but they still couldn't find any records of this specific chalice, as in like the chalice that is that they know is in the church. They couldn't find any records that were earlier than 1399. So again, a whole 1400 years after this supposedly happened. So that I think is why this storyline, even though like in 2014, they published like a whole book that was called Kings of the Grail uh, about how they thought they had found the grail. Um, I think that's maybe why it didn't get a lot of press. Here's my thing. I feel like the Pope would have said like, 
if this could be confirmed, then the Pope would have sent, just like in Ellie's favorite book, he would have sent his little like Pope inspectors to go see it. Oh, do you think about the Da Vinci Code? Yeah, that's what I said. Not my favorite book. <laughs> I just thought I enjoy the movie. Wow. <laughs> so what Ellie's a jump you made. So Ellie, number one Dan Brown superstan. I think you agree <laughs> with me that the Pope would send his like spooky little Pope inspectors to go see this if it was super valid. And then they would announce. Can you imagine what a get that would be for the Catholic Church in like 2020? So I'll, I'll leave you with this. And it's going to sound like a non sequitur, but it's still so important. If you do one thing, I swear to God, if you just do one thing. Just watch the young Pope. I... No, no, it's no. so good. No, it no, yes, Chelsea, it no. It's so good. No, it took me a second. It's slow to start. It's weird as shit. And if you're Catholic, it's gonna make you feel uncomfortable a lot, or even raised Catholic like I was. It's gonna make you feel super uncomfortable. But that show is bonankers. Chelsea, no. And it's very good. Oh boy. I know we went a lot of places. We went so many places, and for that in itself, I'm going to give you four points. Oh I'm going to back that up with a six points about because you took me to a Da Vinci Code place, and you know that that means yeah, a lot. Super to fan. Me. Well, <laughs> would we say that more just like um, I'm going to make a shirt of, about it? No, I don't like that. It's, <laughs> it's like when people are like, "Oh, I love Jurassic Park," because it's like things that don't exist but it's fun that's my feelings about the da vinci Code. i'll make sure that that context is very clear on the shirt don't tell my pastor <laughs> and then also i want to um i want to take away a point because of how uncomfortable you made me just now and then <laughs> i want to give that point back two times because Aww. i love you so much oh i love you too yeah, and that shouldn't be allowed together. but it is it's allowed Laser. Charles, I'm going to I'm gonna start by taking away points. That's horrific. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly for the drama, but also because like I truly and this is okay, just difference of of, of opinion and preference. I just don't like Nicholas Cage. So minus okay. two. Plus eight because the only Nicolas Cage movie that I actually enjoy is National Treasure. And, like, I enjoy it immensely that it almost makes up for... It is, like, the American version of the Da Vinci Code. It's Please so go. good. Yes. And it also, like, represents this, like, moment in my life that I wish I could go back to where I was, like, effortlessly happy and, like, didn't realize that there was a... You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, yep. <laughs> it was one of those moments for, for sure. And then I'm also going to add two points because, um, because you taught me some things that I didn't know about the Holy Grail, which like I truly feel like now I can just enter into a conversation more informed when I didn't, I didn't mm. know. That's fun. And mine is one for like, I don't even know how to, to react to like some religious conversation. So like I too also felt uncomfortable for like a moment, <laughs> but like mostly positive points. Do you love to make everybody uncomfortable? So that's great. <laughs> that's good. It's good for me. And that's our show. And that's that's our, our show, folks. Hey, you guys. Elisa, where can people find you? Oh, man. You can find me two places. If you want to just know what's going on in my personal life, you can at, by the way, it's Elisa. And if you want to follow along with any musical stuff that's going on, you can at 
A-L-E-Z-A with the period in between all those letters. Which you should, because it's this good. girl is one of the most beautiful singers I've ever known in my entire life. Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Maney on Twitter or Ellie Main on Instagram. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Instagram and Twitter and Patreon. And you can find our site at thosetwogirls.club where you will also find our merch. Please check it out. It's a lot of fun. You can also find how you can contact us if you want us to say something fun on the podcast for you. Thank you so much for listening. And maybe this week, I don't know. <laughs> Go learn something. (laughs) (laughs) Am I still allowed to say mine or no? Yes, please do. Please do. Look, Elisa, need you to keep it loose. Keep it tight. Say your prayers today.